Welcome, my friends, to the Tomb of Ideas, a Marvel Horror Podcast. I am the Tomb's proprietor, Headstone P. Gravely, and here I are two captive hosts, Shrey Lawson and James Hickson. Welcome back, to Believers, to a very special episode of Tomb of Ideas, a Marvel Horror Podcast. My name is James Hickson. And I'm Trey Lawson. And we have a very special episode of the show today, looking at two fantastic... Well, I say two fantastic... It's like one fantastic comic. We'll we'll get to it. Right, but we're looking at two books. There are two. (laughs) Right, right, right. We're looking at... Tomb of Dracula, number 24, and the Frankenstein Monster, number 12. And uh, for now, we'll leave you in suspense as to which one of those is the good one. Yeah, yeah. But first, listeners, this is a very special episode of The Tomb this week. So much so that we're actually going to go ahead and push Hellstrom Watch to the back end of the show. Because this week on the show, we have two very special guests. That's right, and I and I know we've had two very special guests on the show before, right? As as recently as last episode, actually, right, right. <laughs> but for Trey and I, these two guests are very, very special. Absolutely, and uh, and we were lucky enough that this weird old equipment in in the corner of the tomb here was able to connect with the outside world. We made contact with these two people who frankly, have been fairly influential in our own sort of development as as consumers of pop culture and movies and, and all kinds of other stuff. That's right. So without further ado, we're going to go ahead and go straight to the interview. After this little bit of editing magic. Welcome back, Tomb Believers, and we have a special treat for you this time. We have a interview with Trace Beaulieu and Frank Conniff, better known as the Mads from MST3K. And of course, they do their regular live stream show and touring show, although touring is somewhat out right now. The Mads are back. And That's right. And, uh, and they've got their upcoming 18th live streamed event in December. It's going to be a riff of Manos, the Hands of Fate, which is fantastic. It's, it's one of the best worst bad movies that i've ever seen and so we're thrilled to have them here to talk about uh the upcoming show and and whatever else they've got going on so welcome frank and trace thank Thank you you. thanks for having us yeah great to be here (laughs) wherever here here is we're not even sure where they have us um right right we just we just know there's no sunlight and um it's sad Yes. <laughs> oh, Minnesota. <laughs> we we hadn't thought of that. Mm. That that would make a lot of sense. Uh, so, as I said, uh, this is your 18th live streamed event. How did this come about? How did you transition? I, I know the pandemic was probably a big part of it, but but whose idea was it to go from the live tour to these sort of Zoom events? I think that's Frank's well, responsibility. Well, I would say it was more our. Um 
our bank accounts idea. To do. <laughs> yeah. um, because as you said, the pandemic came and sudden and, and Trace and I had been making our living from doing live shows, uh, touring the country, which we loved doing. Um, and then suddenly um, it was all cut off. We literally, we did the uh, Brooklyn Alamo Draft House literally the last night before everything closed down. So, um, you know, um, so I, I just, um, uh, you know, I started wondering if it was possible to do it online, and 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 I contacted Chris Gershbeck, who I knew from producing shows um, at uh, QED in Queens, a comedy club, and um, and I know he did a lot of online stuff. So I just said, "Hey, do you think this is feasible?" And he poked around a little bit, and. And finally, we figured out it was actually a pretty simple thing to do. Or I should say he figured it out. I didn't figure out any of this. Uh, For us, it was a cakewalk. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All the hard work. But, Log in, uh, join, go. <laughs> yeah. Yes. But Chris Except. figured it out, and then we, we just started doing it. And, you know, we're so lucky because we have all these great fans who are very loyal to us and yep. who were excited by the idea of seeing us riff uh, – a different movie every month and so it's been successful and and we're just um thrilled about it and, and so grateful that our fans have made this possible for us yeah it really uh it's a great evolution too of uh doing the live shows and uh then being able to uh reach a larger audience now uh in one show um and and uh, you know one day we'll go back on the road, but for now, our home is in your home. And really, yeah. the stuff you've been doing has been fantastic. Like, uh, oh, thank you. The Chuck Connors movie that you did, <laughs> the, Walk the Dark Street. Yeah, yeah, that's a favorite. Yeah, there is something about the the supreme earnestness of Chuck Connors that just yeah. lends itself to riffing. I think. Yeah, yeah that that movie. Um, um, you wouldn't think it would lend itself because it's. The print that we have of it is so bad, you know. But but our but audiences love it anyway, you know. And uh, um, when Trace showed it to me, you know, uh, I said, "Yeah, this looks doable." But I was really worried about how it would go over because it's so dark and it's so, you know, it's not what I'd call a fun movie. And, uh, <laughs> um, and then the first time we did it, which was at the um, Voodoo Lounge in Denver, Colorado. It just went over like gangbusters, and I was so relieved and happy about that. I was always nervous because the print's so bad, and I, I thought they will not accept it. Every time we played it for like the first year, and I go, "Oh, I apologize because yeah. this is not what you should be seeing." <laughs> but it, uh, there have been worse MST episodes. I think the Dead Talk Back was virtually yeah. all gray and black no highlights at all i always yeah. think of i think it was one of one of the fu manchu movies that you did the christopher lee fu manchu <laughs> movies yes. and and yeah. it's almost unwatchable visually it's just all sort of yellowish brown yeah it's almost yeah. unwatchable it is unwatchable. <laughs> it reminds me it, that those that color palette reminds me of shag carpeting from the 70s yes everyone had that sort of it's not a color but it's every color mm -hmm. You have found your way to the Brady Bunch basement. <laughs> yes, yeah. After a kegger. And 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 uh, and the the other sort of gem of, of these uh, live events that really stood out to me was uh, one of the uh, night of shorts that you did, the Sonny Bono anti-drug <laughs> uh, yes. marijuana documentary was just 
Oh, it was fantastic. (laughs) I saw saw that one in school when I was a kid. And, you know, and all the other kids in the class were joking about how stoned Sonny Bono looked, (laughs) you know. And we did did an evening of shorts um, in one of our online shows. And uh, and I mentioned that, I I just mentioned that movie as a short film. I think just as an example of a short film that I saw when I was a kid. And then immediately, lots of our fans sent us links, like right away, here it is, it's, it's still around. And, and then so we did it in our next uh, short show. That actually uh, originally came as a suggestion from uh, the Riff Tracks people. They were generous enough to send that. Wow. Oh, cool, cool. Yeah. Um, and so I guess that sort of uh, brings up the question then, um, the, the movie selection process for the features or the short, uh, how does that go? I, I know at, at MST, uh, Frank was sort of the front line of that. Um, is that still the case or is it committee or, or do, do you solicit stuff or, or what? In fact, now that I think of it, you know, it was my job um, uh, to do that in MST3K, but with the meds are back, I think I've really dropped the ball on that. <laughs> <laughs> I traced it. Yeah, we're getting films from all over now, and yeah. especially the fans have like fans maybe have a lot of suggestions. Half of them, yeah. Ace has suggested things, and occasionally I'll come across something. But um, yeah, it really is just stuff comes our way, and you know you can go to like archive.org, and there's a lot of stuff there. Um, you know, asking you, Frank, to go back into that world uh, is like asking William Holden to go back to the river <laughs> on the bridge on the River Kwai. <laughs> You can't do that. You can't do that. <laughs> Jolly good show, Frank. He's going back in. That leads to another question I have. Do you ever get tired of being associated with bad movies? Do you ever just wish that somebody would ask you to, hey? You talking to us or Michael Bay? <laughs> <laughs> Do you ever just wish that they're like, they're like, hey, can you come in and talk about Frank Capra films for just a little bit for well, us? I, you know, that, the thing is, though, is I, if you, if you follow me on Twitter, I mean, I, I may... Um, I, I blog about film a lot, and I'm always talking about great movies, and um, I'm always talking about what's on Turner Classic Movies, and um, I much prefer to talk about um, good movies, and I do all the time. Um, the only thing that um, I think is wrong is when is when people say to me or they say to us. Um, you know, are you capable of watching a movie without riffing on it? And I'm like, yes, yes absolutely. Yeah. I hate it when people in a movie theater, and I think if you're in a movie theater where people have paid to see a film, regardless of what the film is, you, you should never yell out comments and <laughs> and talk back to the screen because or be on your phone, or be on your phone or anything like that. Do you do it at home? Do it with your friends. Um, when you're gathered together watching TV, um, but don't do it in a public movie theater. Um, but no, people, that's, you should are, be eating a big crunchy box of nachos <laughs> and ordering drinks. An acceptable uh, form of noise, but you know, but people uh, think that I would do that going to a movie, but I, I wouldn't, and I, and I strongly advise people against doing that. Yeah, you, you say that. It's true. I, I went to, this was several years ago now, but a uh, uh, Halloween night screening of The Exorcist, which, classic horror mm-hmm. movie, one of my all-time yeah, favorites, mm-hmm. and there was somebody in the back of the theater who thought they were at a Rocky Horror Picture Show screening or something, and, yeah. and were just calling things out every few minutes, and, and there's a time and a place for that, and during a classic movie, 
that lots of people have paid, you know, a substantial amount of money to see, it doesn't yeah. seem appropriate. Yeah, exactly. Is, you know, and um, so uh, so I think that's where people misperceive us as the, the idea that we're really into bad movies. It's our job to watch <laughs> bad movies and to riff on them, you know, but... My, it makes uh, the good ones more precious. Yes. Um, I just watched The Godfather again for I don't yeah. know how many hundreds of times wow. I watched that. And uh, I never have ever thought of riffing that movie. I sure. Mean, it's, uh, there are probably places that you could, but I, I can't ever see them because I enjoy that film so much. Yeah. If, I, if I'm watching a good movie... Um, I, you know, I don't, I don't want to riff. I don't want to hear riffs. I, I, I just get into the movie and, and enjoy it. You know, the only, the only riff I ever came up with during a good movie is "Shut up, I'm watching this." <laughs> yeah. I think that's part of the buy-in, really, of of something like the Mads are back and Mr. 3K riff tracks, all that is that you are joining with some friends and you're just watching this together and just having right. a good time with it. Yeah, and 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 you're yeah. creating something worth paying attention to when often what's happening on the screen is not able to capture your attention for very long. <laughs> right. Well, ho hopefully, and, and we hope we're not disrespectful disrespectful to these films because we really do enjoy these films on on certain levels. Yeah. Uh, may not ever watch it again, but uh, they're, they're, they're a unique kind of filmmaking and they're, they're very... Uh, they're very dear, if I could use a grandmother word. <laughs> you know, I, I have great affection for all of these films. Walk the Dark Street and Glenn or Glenda, I think, are two of my favorite films out of this this genre of supposedly bad movies. Oh, I, I, I just know for myself, I watched the Rocket Man shorts and like um, Rocky Jones yeah. TV shows unironically, just because. And of course, I got turned on to them by MST3K when I was a kid, and it's like okay, this is actually my jam, so... Well, and that you. kind of, like, pulp adventure has mm -hmm. a sincerity to it that, that's appealing, even that's outside yeah. of the, yeah. the jokiness. And I think that's something that you're getting at, is good riffing as comedy requires a certain appreciation of movies and movie-going. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You said the, the exact word, sincerity. Sincerity on the part of the people making the film yes. is very important to for me what makes a movie riffable any any irony or self-knowledge or self-awareness on the part of the filmmakers when they're when they when the filmmakers are in on the joke then it's problematic to me yeah so, there's, there's a like difference the between manos and, and and sharknado yes exactly yes yeah. yes and i know people love sharknado but it's not. It's not the kind of film I would ever want to riff. Personally. They're making their own jokes. Like there's, there's yeah, exactly. not really space to riff a whole lot because they're doing it for you. Yeah, I think that kind of leads us to our next next question. What qualities or attributes do you think make a film riffable? Well, like I just said, sincerity and earnestness on the mm -hmm. part of the filmmakers, and and you know, it helps if there's some kind of story. It's actually helpful. You know, even though like usually the stories. They're not told well, but if there's some kind of a sense of a beginning, middle, and an end, it seems to to help the the riffing and the experience more. Um, you know, when when I was at Mystery Science Theater, you know, I turned down a lot of films that were just incomprehensible, and you couldn't tell what was going on. I mean, we we did a few of those. Let's be honest, but um, you know, 
uh, you know, I, I much prefer something where you can tell what's going on, where you can hear what they're saying, when you can see what they're doing. You know, um, I think that kind of stuff is helpful. Yeah, excessive narration too is difficult to work around. Yeah. You always wind up talking over it, and that's less effective yeah. most of the time. Riffs work best when they're not done over dialogue. You know? Yeah. So, so a movie that's really bad but has constant dialogue is one we're probably not going to do. But then on the other hand, what was that film we did that had no dialogue? The um, a, a Joseph Cotton in it? Or you remember this one I'm talking about on Mystery but Science? The, but, but did we do it or not do it? No, we didn't do it because... That was the thief you're thinking the, of. Yeah, <laughs> there was like no dialogue. With Raymond. Yeah, um, right. Which is a very obscure, I never see it on TV ever. It's an obscure movie, but it's it was uh, like done in the 50s, and the gimmick of it was there was no dialogue in wow. it. Wow. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine that would be difficult to, to fill all you that space. You need stuff to bounce off of. Yeah, mm -hmm. you, you have to play off these tropes and, and, and great one-liners. When a film hands you, you know, a nice setup, uh, that's a gift. And yes. uh, we, we love when that happens. So, so it sounds like sincerity but some sort of gap between ambition and what is accomplished. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, Aim high, you know. Oh, so like this podcast. These people all, you know, who made these films, they wanted them to be good films. They were intending to make a good film. And, um, and God bless them for that, you know. And, you know, like I've said, like, we look at this as a collaborator, not as like we're t trying to tear down the films, um, we see it as like a collaboration, like they made the movie and now we're adding another element to it and, and then cre creating like a third form of entertainment. Um, but they, you know, we have to respect the filmmakers because they did all the work. They had production meetings, they did the location scouting, they, they went out and hired people, they, you know, they, they photographed it, they edited it. Uh, you know, all we did is sit in our chair with a with a bag of potato chips and made fun of it. You know, you you get chips. <laughs> I had to do my contract. Not since my heart. But. Uh, and and that sort of I guess brings us to why go back to Manos? What what's bringing you back to Manos? A pandering. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's a sincere form of gift giving, uh, pandering. Um, we thought you know we did. Um, we did a, a, a film that we did on Mystery Science Theater last December. We did Santa Claus. That's right. Yeah. And uh, and and so we wanted to do something special for Christmas, but we felt like all the Christmas movies have been riffed already, either by riff tracks or you know that the, the, they've kind of um, all been done. So so we thought like maybe just as like Manos, The Hands of Fate will be our special Christmas treat to our audience you know and it really is a Christmas story if you <laughs> twist it into your freaky logic yeah uh, oh yeah uh, and, and I guess uh, so Trace you have riffed it before because you were in that episode uh, Frank you, you were writing on that episode but, but I guess this is your first time riffing Manos right of me personally as a performer doing the riffing, right? I wasn't involved with the writing the last time around, sure. and it'll be, it'll be the first time I've really watched the whole thing since since Mystery Science Theater. I, I did a I, I riffed I did an improvised riff of a clip from it one time in one of the shows that Chris Gershbeck produced at QED, um, but uh, other than that, I really 
Aside from a million gifts that I see every day on Twitter, <laughs> right. I haven't really uh, watched it. I, you know, I actually, after you guys announced that you were doing Manos, I watched the Unrift version for the first time, uh, and brave. It's there. There is a sincerity to it. They, they are, tr- they, they are trying something, but it kind yeah. of, it's got this sort of skeezy tone to it that that is it's almost like watching a crime scene sometimes it's a I snuff know. film without the murders <laughs> yes <laughs> or the laughs oh. <laughs> I, I didn't watch it on rift i just watched him watch it and said godspeed to him but <laughs> well this will be a, a more abridged version we're cutting it down to uh old man length which is about 70 75 minutes uh, so it will be, and you know, we're cutting out a lot of that stuff you don't need, uh, which is hard to stop cutting. I'm sure the story. I'm sure this st- the story will not suffer at all. Will there be pee breaks? Because <laughs> I'm getting towards old man age. One before, one after. That's the um, beauty of watching it at home. You can take all the pee breaks you want. To, to shift gears a little bit, um, I, I think you guys talked a little bit about this on, on the last show you did, but. Uh, you guys were both comics readers growing up, right? Comic books, like. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Um, d- did yep. you read any of the horror or monster comics that were coming out, or or were you exclusively superheroes and stuff? Creepy and eerie. Does that count? Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Those yeah. are great. Yeah, that was when I couldn't get monster magazines. I would go to those. Yeah. Yeah, I was. Uh, I was. I think as a kid, I was. I was really mainly a superhero guy. Um, Marvel, especially, um, I was, you know, I was a kid, right at the when the when the Silver Age sure. was happening, you know, right at that exact moment. So, um, so I, you know, I loved Marvel comics. Um, I loved the sensibility of them. Um, I, I don't think I was into horror um, as much as, you know, um, uh, people like like Trace. Uh, you know, or, or our friend Dana Gould, who you know always bought famous monsters from Filmland yeah. when they were kids and followed horror things like that. I wasn't really like that as much, you know. Um, but uh, but I did when I was a kid. I did like yeah. the superhero I, ones. I am personally a huge fan of uh, the, just the area you're talking about, the Silver Age era of Marvel, and to been to have been able to be there while it was developing just sounds amazing. Because, like, when I was getting into comics, my parents, rather than buying me new comics, just bought me collections of old comics. So everything mm-hmm. I was reading was, like, you know, Fantastic Four from 20 years before I was born. Right. Yeah, I mean, I was, I guess, I guess I was five years old when the first issue of Fantastic Four came out. Um, and But I think my my consciousness of comics... Even though I was reading them then, I was probably reading like more like Casper and stuff like that when I. So I did read horror comics, <laughs> but you know, by the time I was uh, seven or eight, I was I was reading a lot of Marvel, uh, a lot of Spider-Man, um, a lot of uh, Iron Man. I was since I was a, um, uh, I was really into secret agents uh, and spies when I was a kid. I was enamored of James Bond and The Man from U.N.C.L.E. was my favorite show so uh, I think that's why my favorite Marvel comic of that era was the uh, Jim Steranko Nick Fury Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. Um, which kind of combined secret agent and uh, and uh, sci-fi you know and um, so, so those were my favorite. I, 
I also am a big fan of of sort of spy science fiction adventure intersections. So um, the those uh, those Starenko books really changed what comics looked like. Um, just visually yeah. unique. Yeah, I mean there was so much talent uh, back then um, working in comics, and uh, um, but I you know I was just a kid. It was they were just comics that I really liked. There was. Uh, you know, I wasn't um, sophisticated enough that I had a sense of what really was happening and the stylistically, the innovations and all that. Like, you know, that was oh, way over my head. I was just a kid who enjoyed reading yeah, these comics. And, and books. at the end of the day, that's that's sort of uh, where we all are as far as fans. You know, right. it's just they're entertaining. Yeah. It's like watching a good movie. In a similar yeah. vein, I'm talking about like horror. Um, MSD2K and riffing and. and as a whole have always been kind of a tangent of like horror hosting uh, the mm-hmm. horror host back in the day did you guys yeah. have horror hosts when you were growing up oh yeah yeah oh, absolutely. i think every major city had their version of a horror host do, do you remember um, what what sort of show was was your local horror well when i was a kid new york city had a ton of great local kids programming and um uh channel five um had uh, Wonderama and also um, uh, really funny people like uh, Chuck McCann and uh, Sandy Becker and Sonny Fox hosted local kids shows and and that sensibility bled over I think into the uh, horror shows. There's a guy in New York uh, named Zachary who who had like a Saturday night show and he was very funny and had that kind of sensibility and he was also um, the disc jockey on the um, on the cool FM WNEW FM, which was the cool um, album-oriented FM rock station at the time in New York. So, um, uh, so yeah, we definitely had had that in New York. For yeah, sure. Minneapolis had the same type of thing. Um, you know, the the weather guy was the horror <laughs> host, or. <laughs> Uh, we had all there was like a you know a preschool um, if you're that old there was a show for the that age kids and then later in the morning there was Clancy the cop and Willie Ketchum uh, was his sidekick and at noon we had lunch with Casey Casey Jones the engineer the train engineer with his sidekick Roundhouse Rodney uh, great stuff, and they would just, you know, they'd play all records like Spike Jones and lip sync to that stuff, and create silly sketches, and uh, very inspiring to see that kind of stuff as a kid, where it just was guys trying to fill airtime mm-hmm. ultimately, and just having a ba- a blast at whatever local station with no resources and you know minimal props. Uh, just uh, th- there's something very heartening about that. Uh, you know that whole world and and there are new shows like online we meet these hosts at uh, uh, conventions that are are still doing it in fact um, our friend in Pensacon has got a show on the local uh, PBS down there that it keeps expanding throughout the the south and they've got a uh, hosted movie show that is brand new and then Sven Gulli I mean he's yeah. the grandfather and the father and the everything of it and it's, it's so great that WBA. he's been able to sort of build a national brand out of that because yeah used, used to yeah. be that was someone that that like we heard about but but couldn't watch where I'm from and and so now yeah you know, he's on cable it's great yeah 
Yeah. Uh, in fact, since you guys have been doing the, the rebroadcasts of the live shows, that that's sort of been a Saturday night for me is, you know, a double feature of Svinguli and the Mads. Oh, that's, we encourage, and that's actually the reason why when we, when we decided to do rebroadcasts and we decided to do them on Saturday night, but the reason we do them at 10 p.m., is because we is be, is specifically because Fenguli is on at eight p.m. We don't want people to miss Fenguli. That's great. Watch Fenguli late, and then they can yeah, watch they us. Can yeah, Star like, Trek. That's fine. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? It'll they they rerun Star Trek sometimes, so they might get a chance. Yeah, and you talk about the sort of localness of of that genre of sort of filling airtime with with sketches and movies and stuff. When I was a kid. It was sort of the the tail end of the more professionalized version of that. I remember the the Bozo Super Show, which had yeah. had some yep. national broadcasting, that. and and mm-hmm. when I was very very young, I have vague memories of uh, Grandpa Al Lewis doing uh, Saturday morning monster movies on yeah. uh, on the Superstation. <laughs> and Trey, I don't know if you remember this. Um, we also had Mister Knows It as far as kids host goes. Oh yeah, day. yeah, yeah, yeah. Mr. Knows it. it. He was called Mr. Knows it. He's he's he is still a legendary weatherman in the area called Joe Pinner. But every morning he would have the show called Mr. Knows it, and you were nobody if you hadn't been in the audience of a Mr. Knows it show when I was growing up. What town was this? Columbia, South Carolina. Oh, okay, uh, cool. Yeah, yeah. And it was kind of a, a like educational, like Mr. Wizardy kind of thing. Yeah. yeah, yeah. We we had a show like that too, where you'd you had to get your kid's birthday party on the show. That was like, <laughs> then you were like royalty. Well, there uh, was a kid show when I was a kid called in New York called Birthday House, um, and uh, hosted by this guy Paul Tripp, who is actually the star of the movie The Christmas That Almost Wasn't, which was the new Mystery Science Theater rift recently. But I, re- I remember the, the ads for that movie from when I was a kid. Um, uh, but uh, And Birthday House was like on every morning on Channel 4 at like 9 a.m. And, and it, was, it was devoted to, to kids' birthdays. It was weird. Yeah, the, a lot of that on local programming where you got your name. I heard my name on TV. Yeah. <laughs> well, they did that on Romper Room, too, where yes, she would yeah. look through her magnifying glass Mm-hmm. And then she mentioned all these kids' names that were in the audience. It was, it was cool. It's funny because I, I was actually one of those kids who never got to be in the audience of Mr. Noza before. But I actually um, interviewed him when I was working on an article. And when I talked about how I knew, what used to watch on Mr. Noza growing up, he just switched right back to that kids mode, kids host show. And like, oh, what are you doing now? Well, doing this and like, so forth. It was really endearing. Yeah. <laughs> That's cool. So um, one thing that, that we thought we would do is is get a little advice from you because our listeners have been encouraging us to do as, as a special episode commentaries watching the, the two Venom superhero movies. They don't want Which to. we're not really fans of. No, please. Well, we're we're being asked to watch these movies that are not especially good, and and uh, and record our sort of commentary responses somewhere between riffing and informational, I suppose. Mm-hmm. And we were wondering, since you are expert movie riffers, if you had any advice for us about talking over a bad movie. Uh, uh, 
I would say don't do it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Find a job. I, you know, I, I saw the first Venom movie. I mean, it wasn't great. It, was, it wasn't that bad. It was okay. okay. I started watching it this morning. Uh, I'm only like five minutes in, uh, I assume. But, more, but I've got both of them queued up to watch. Okay. Venom and uh, Let There Be Carnage. Let There Be Carnage. Is the new one available streaming now? I don't know. Okay. It might be on demand. Like you might have to rent mm. it. But yeah. yeah. They look like great, dumb, actiony monster movies. Okay. But I, That's fair. I've only seen five minutes, <laughs> and I've seen all the trailers and stuff. It just looks. Sure. And Tom Hardy is always worth watching. He's awesome. I, I, I do enjoy him. Tom Hardy. Yeah. So I would say pick a worse movie to do that with. <laughs> fair. <laughs> That's fair. It is clear that you are all part of the conspiracy against me, and I'm. Uh... <laughs> well, you want to you want to watch Venom. I don't want to watch it. I you really, don't want to really watch, don't watch them. Why don't you do Venom and The Last Duel, and then <laughs> Well, people have been arguing about that movie lately. Something about how it's been, I don't know, taken down by millennials not wanting to see yeah, it or I something. Saw that, that quote from Ridley Scott. Yeah, you know, which is kind of all oh, millennials, the kids today with their hula hoops and their fax machines. You know, right. they don't, <laughs> they don't, uh, they're ruining everything. And and that movie, I w- I haven't seen it, and I'm I, I admire Ridley Scott a great deal. Yes. So I would say the trouble with that film, maybe the reason it flopped is because it, it feels like it was really poorly marketed. You mm-hmm. know, when it, people are just hearing about it because of the controversy. Yes, exactly. Right. Right. Well, and it was exclusive to theaters at a time when a lot of people are not going to go to that kind of movie at a theater. Right. And they yeah, decided not to tell anybody it was in the theater. <laughs> the yes. pandemic, you know, plays a part in, in all of it. So, you know, it's it was just bad luck that it was came out now and that it's and that the the studio behind it didn't really market it, but at least they were self-aware and that they called it the last duel, so they knew there wasn't going to be a sequel. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> yes, I, I, w- I want to see it. I love Ridley Scott's yeah. work, um, but I'm waiting for it uh, when I can watch it on an app on my phone. Yeah, so, sure. And also, he's another really impressive thing about Ridley Scott is he's 82, and he has another film opening this weekend, the House of Gucci film with That's uh, right. with Lady Gaga, which I which I would really like to see. As that well. looks like a really good. I, film. I'm hearing very yeah. good things about the performances in that movie. So he uh, he's crushing it, Ridley Scott. Yeah. So it's obvious. In addition to being movie rivers, you are both lovers of film. What inspired each of you to really become, I guess, what we would call cinephiles, or at least movie fans yeah, is there like a formative movie watching or movie going experience that, that you can sort of trace that back to um i think you know seeing so many great movies when i was a kid on television i mean it was really a cool time to be around like eventually all the bond films made it on to television and you can actually watch you know i wasn't allowed to go to the theater all that often uh, but, you know, Birdman of Alcatraz uh, was on the really great classic films. Um, and then there was nothing else to do but watch movies all weekend. Right. You, know, you can't go outside for six, eight months of the, out of the year. So uh, and, and it was a great time because a lot of the television stations were getting films that the studios kind of were offloading, like all the monster films that fueled all the horror shows late at night. 
um, you know, afternoon on Sunday or uh, there was a matinee movie. That was another local hosted show and they would show classic movies, you know, throughout the afternoon. It was it was a dream movie era to see that stuff uh, as a kid and they'd show it over and over and over. So you'd start memorizing your favorite parts. Yeah. And, and, you know, for me, when I look back, I think I think 1964, when I was eight years old, was was like a really um, formative year for me as a moviegoer because that year, um, Doctor Strangelove came out, um, A Hard Day's Night came out, um, Mary Poppins uh, and Goldfinger came out that year as well. And um, those, you know, I, I wouldn't be able to narrow it down to just four films that turned me into a film buff. But if I had to, those four films coming out that year um, and uh, um, really just were transformative to me. The Beatles, the, the, the Beatles movie, A Hard Day's Night, um, combined my love for the Beatles with... The, you know, and, and it was made by one of the greatest filmmakers of all time, Richard Lester, and it was yeah. completely revolutionary in the way it was filmed and was influential to this day. Although, uh, you know, it's 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 just a uh, you know a great movie. My, my feeling about L Richard Lester in, in those days is that his whole philosophy was like, what if Jean Luc Godard was fun? You know what I mean? It's like. <laughs> Yes. He like used all these European techniques, and and but he but he applied it to really fun movies like A Hard Day's Night, Help, uh, Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum. Mm -hmm. the I always liked Three Musketeers. Three Musketeers, mm -hmm. yeah, brilliant. yeah, that came out a few years later, and yeah. uh, um, so and then Kubrick, you know, Doctor Strangelove really just cemented my interest in comedy and also expanded my mind as to what a comedy could be and what it could entail. Uh, it could entail like the most horrific thing in, imaginable that, and you could make a comedy about it. You know, that, that really affected my way of thinking um, for a long time after that. And, and Mary Poppins and Goldfinger were just, you know, Goldfinger was, was kind of the James Bond, was kind of where they really figured out, oh, this is what a James Bond movie is going to be, you know. This is oh, it. yeah, that that's the one where they had the gadgets and the car yeah, and yeah. the villain. And, and, yeah, and the first two were really good, but that was the one where they really landed on the formula of it. And uh, you know, and Mary Poppins was just so delightful and entertaining and fun. And um, you know, so so to see those four films when I was eight years old in the same year, uh, I, I think it changed me forever. The thing Great. that also influenced my movie watching uh, was reading. Uh, all of the mad parodies because uh, mm -hmm. I got to s experience the film kind of w without having seen them like I was never allowed to go to see Clockwork Orange or that kind of thing but reading th them in mad you were introduced to them in kind of a very gentle you know uh, sub teenage years way um, and it also you know that's that's movie riffing that what they're doing is exactly what we did later uh, and, and all of that colored my both, you know, movie going and, and comedy enjoying. It's funny, Mad Magazine uh, did kind of what Looney Tunes did, that it made all yeah. of these pop culture references to things that kids wouldn't necessarily have a full frame of reference for. But, mm -hmm. but it just sort of gets embedded in your psyche and your memory from seeing the parody of it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. 
I think for me, um, you guys actually made me a film fan because, like I said, I started watching MST3K in like second grade. And what I would end up doing is I'd end up trying to stay up late to watch it because I was never quite sure how to read a TV schedule in second grade when I was eight years old. Yeah. So I was like, just keep on Comedy Central till it turns on. But the problem with that is I would watch stand-up specials and I would start repeating those jokes at school. So I wasn't allowed to watch those anymore. <laughs> <laughs> but so when MSC3K wasn't on, I would instead turn to something like Nick at Night. And then eventually I turned to something like Turner Classic Movies and I discovered the Thin Man films oh, and they yeah. became my favorite films of all time. And you know, if it wasn't me just waiting for you guys to come on, I wouldn't be really the person I am. So thanks for that, I guess. <laughs> My wife would like some words, I think. <laughs> and I, I think uh, what what we've all sort of talked around is is that uh, while, while people like to talk about TV versus theater going, and now I guess it's become sort of small screen versus big screen, but, but really we've all sort of talked about how watching things on the small screen television and, and now streaming and things like that fuels our love for things that we also watch on uh big screens in theatrical experiences too that it, it's all watching movies and mm -hmm. and the the medium the, the 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 delivery mechanism doesn't necessarily matter as much as as some people make it out to be when i grew up everything was on a 13 inch black and white television set <laughs> Yeah. You know, Lawrence of Arabia, uh, yep. you know, it's still a compelling with film. Commercials. Yes, with commercials. Yeah, uh, I was the only that... way to watch. If you didn't go to a movie theater, um, the only way to watch a movie was on broadcast television with commercials mm -hmm. uh, and um, pan and scan. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and that was how uh, my generation of film buffs. And, and Martin Scorsese talks about it too, how we would watch the million dollar movie when he was a kid on Channel 9. They'd show Citizen Kane every night. Um, so he would watch it five, five times that week and, it was, and he would learn about filmmaking uh, from that. When I was a kid in New York, um, like each, each local channel um, was like its own revival, revival house that specialized in certain films like Channel 5, was uh, Warner Brothers films. If you liked, you know, uh, Humphrey Bogart, you know, Casablanca and or Betty Davis movies, um, uh, you'd see it on Channel 5. Uh, Channel 9 was RKO, was Citizen Kane, was King Kong, was, uh, was all those films. Uh, Channel 2 was uh, MGM, you know, The Late Show, which they had instead of Letterman back in those days and instead of Colbert. Uh, it was called, that's what the Colbert show was named after, was that movie show, The Late Show. Um, they, you know, that's where you would see, um, you know, Clark Gable movies from the 30s from MGM, and also Columbia, it's where I first saw On the Waterfront. Um, so, you know, that was kind of how you became a film buff back then, was from the various different local stations. And, and I know that in New York, revival houses were around, but when I was a kid, that wasn't really an option. You know, by the time I was in my 20s, I would go to revival houses all the time in New York. The Thalia Theater, the New Yorker Theater. Um, film uh, Forum. The Film Forum, which is still around. And yep. uh, um, the Bleecker Street Cinema. Um, you know, but all that stuff's all gone now. But And it, it's too bad that that's all gone. But on the other hand, you have you have a revival house on your iPad now. You know, you have mm -hmm. it in your home on your 
TV. So you lose some things, but you gain others. Sure. Yeah. So to bring things full circle, what comes next? Where do the Mads go from Manos? Do you have <laughs> plans for the for the for 2022? I think uh, once we make it through the Manos portal, anything <laughs> is possible. <laughs> And uh, we've got no plans to uh, do live shows yet, but you know maybe later down the road in next year that can happen. Um, but uh, this is uh, this has been so much fun to do these live shows and to do a lot of films that we, we wouldn't have had you know access to, you know, because we usually when we were on the road we're doing Walk the Dark Street over and over and over again. But this is a fresh movie. You can't get any fresher than this, than taking an old movie <laughs> and making it fresh. Yeah, we're, we're just going to keep doing our show every month. Um, uh, the second Tuesday, uh, we'll, we'll always be doing a new live riff, and the third Saturday, we'll always be rebroadcasting um, something. And other than that, we'll, we'll see what comes up, you know. Yeah. Um, uh, hopefully, uh, 2022 will be an improvement for everybody, I hope, you know. Yeah. Yeah. People will be safer and more things will open up. Uh, I just want them to be smarter. Yeah, that would just, be that's all I ask. So we'll we'll see, you know, but but just have to take it as it comes and right now it's just keep doing the uh the the monthly digital shows. It's great. Well, I've I have not missed one yet. They've all been Thank awesome. You. Uh I, I've enjoyed every single one. Um, and the community that's grown around them through yes. like the YouTube chats and the discords and the Facebook group. Uh, it's just such a great group of fans getting together to, to laugh at this stuff. And that has been a really lovely thing in what otherwise has been kind of a dark time in the last couple of years. A little bit. Uh, yeah. it's, I think in general, in this pandemic we've gone through, people have gotten a lot of comfort from from entertainment, you know, from being able to to watch movies and to escape and to watch to binge watch TV series, and um, I think it's it's for me personally, it's 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 helped a whole hell of a lot to be able to um, since I'm going to be inside anyway to be able to enjoy some some great uh, great films and great TV shows. That's awesome, and I, I should say this again. Uh, the Mads are back presenting Manos, The Hands of Fate is going to be live on, I think you guys are still using uh, YouTube. For a while there was some Twitch, but but it will be live streamed. Uh, and that's Tuesday, December 14th at 8 p.m. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think the tickets are already available on Eventbrite. Yep, yes. 8 p.m. Eastern time. Yes, Eastern time, yes. <laughs> Uh, and uh, and you guys also have a wonderful YouTube channel that I just want to make sure I, I call out because if anyone has not seen any of the the live events before, there are some great shorts and clips and, and things on that YouTube channel to check out too. Oh yes, thank you for mentioning that. Well, thank, thank you. you. And I also want to mention that if if people think they might be otherwise engaged on December fourteenth at eight p.m., if you get your ticket by showtime. You still have the option of watching a download whenever you want to watch it. So, um, so just so people know that. That yep. yes, that has been a fantastic thing uh, that I really appreciate. Because there have been a few Tuesdays where uh, I've needed to to watch later. Uh, mm. So so I appreciate that, that you, you make the the download an option. You too can force it on family and friends at Christmas. So. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be uh, a Manos Christmas this year. So 
It'll That's be great. special. So thank you so much for joining us. We are very much looking forward to, to your show in December and everything that you have coming up going forward. Thank Thanks you for having us. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Good it's been an honor, you gentlemen. Thank you so much. Yeah, it was awesome. Thank you. Well, that was lovely. Yes. Frank and Trace were lovely and uh, insightful. And I am, again, just very much looking forward to their upcoming live riff of Manos. Yeah, very much so. They didn't roll their eyes at us nearly as much as I thought they would. Right? They. It's actually a little bit flattering. Yeah. Yeah. Good times. But speaking of rolling our eyes, we're going to go ahead oh. and take a quick break. And we're going to be right back with our coverage of our first comic for this week. That is... The Frankenstein Monster, number 12. Right after these messages. Welcome, my friends, to the exclusive United Kingdom premiere of The Frank. Don't be afraid. We're having a very special gathering at Sci-Fi London. All of your friends will be there, and there will be singing and dancing, and we'll have something very special to show you. But not yet! Special London premiere of The The Frank, starring Frank Conniff and Trace Beaulieu, only at Sci-Fi London. Greetings, guys and ghouls. I'm the Invisible Dan Cologne, and this is The Monsters That Made Us. Join Monster Mike Manzi and I on the last Friday of every month as we celebrate all of the spooktacular characters and films in the Universal Studios' classic monster series. From the Phantom of the Opera to The Creature Walks Among Us, we sink our teeth into all the gory details as we dissect the films that gave us some of the most iconic movie monsters of all time. The Monsters That Made Us is brought to you by the Cage Club Podcast Network. For more information, head on over to cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. Welcome back to Tomb of Ideas. I'm Trey Lawson, and our first issue for today is the Frankenstein Monster number 12, A Cold and Lasting Tomb. The cover date is September 1974. The writer is Doug Mensch, artist Val Merrick, inker Vince Coletta, Letterer John Constanza, colorist is Petra Goldberg, and the editor is Roy Thomas. Frankenstein's monster, wounded and bleeding, staggers away from the castle laboratory, where he just escaped from being experimented on by his creator's descendant. He reaches a forest where wolves, smelling blood, attack. The monster uses what strength he has left to fend off the animals. Then, sensing his impending doom, the monster begins climbing a nearby mountain in search of an appropriate resting place. Mid-climb, the rocks give way, and the monster falls into the icy waters below, and time passes. With generations of war and conflict and technological development, and in the present day, in those same waters, an oil tanker runs headfirst into an iceberg. Several men are thrown overboard, and one of them sees Frankenstein's monster frozen in the ice again. The ship's medics thaw the monster out and are shocked to find that he is still alive. They prepare to revive the monster with electroshock treatment, while above deck, the crewman who found the creature complains that it was his find, and he should get to decide what happens to it, like maybe selling it to his brother's traveling carnival. So, after arriving in port that night, 
he and his brother sneak aboard the ship and steal the monster, making it the newest attraction in the carnival, as seen in the Frankenstein 73 story way back in Monsters Unleashed number two. The events of those black and white magazine stories are briefly recapped, and we are brought to the present with the monster once again wandering the streets, alone and confused. Meanwhile, inside the building that the monster is walking past, a scientist lectures his students about the medical impossibility of a successful brain transplant. So this issue is basically a retread of a bunch of stories from other books. Sort of. So the the first few pages is new material. The monster leaving the castle and climbing the mountain and falling. Basically to that point, from that point, it is it's it's new. But from the moment that he is found, it's basically stuff we've seen before. Yeah. Specifically in Monsters Unleashed. Now, that said, I imagine that the readership for Monsters Unleashed was not very high. And so they probably, like, if they were bringing this book to the present day, they needed to account for that stuff and could not guarantee that readers actually knew that any of it had happened. (laughs) I suppose. I mean, I am pretty sure that uh, Monsters Unleashed doesn't really survive far past this issue if they're moving the story over here. The Frankenstein monster doesn't survive far past this issue, so... (laughs) Yeah, 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 you're right there, I suppose. A a funny thing that occurs to me, though, the cover of this book depicts an event from a different book. You're right, it does. The monster breaking free at the carnival happens in Monsters Unleashed. Yep, crap. I hate it when they do that. Like, they don't even show that moment like that. And, well, for one thing, he's not breaking out of the ice in, in Monster. He's breaking out of a glass chamber, I think. But yeah, but still, like that—that that is an event from a book that we covered a long time ago. Yeah, I looked it up. Frankenstein's monster only lasts six more issues after this. Yep, yep. Although, also, we we should make a note. There's an issue of Avengers we need to cover soon. Oh crap! <laughs> Never mind. I like Avengers. <laughs> is, is this um, the Legion of the Unliving stuff? Yeah, yeah, it is. Okay, I'm for it. With what, Im- Immortus, maybe? Uh, Immortus sounds right. It's either Kang or Immortus. I think it's Immortus. I'm pretty sure it's Immortus, yeah. That that actually chronologically is pretty close to where we're at right now. Okay, I'm looking forward to that. I, I really like weird Immortus stories, and mm-hmm. it doesn't get much weirder than Le- Legion of the Unliving. This is true. This is true. Um, so this is, despite our sort of not being thrilled with the way that it's handled this is a turning point for this book because we have basically skipped forward to the present day we kept wondering how they were going to, how we were going to sort of fill all that time in between and they basically just pulled a, a cheat and froze him in ice again <laughs> now i'm just imagining frankenstein in a captain america uniform <laughs> I, I kind of want like the panel of the medics like unfreezing frankenstein monster except it's like Namor and Tony Stark. <laughs> no, Namor didn't unfreeze him. Namor just threw him Namor at finds the, him. Namor finds him, throws him at the Eskimos or the Inuits or whatever they are, the natives. And right, right. he drifts into warmer waters where the Avengers find him while looking for Namor. That's right. That's I knew Namor was involved. This is the, the kind of extremely useful knowledge that I have in my brain. <laughs> 
Yeah. I, I have no idea where this book is going now, though. No, no. Especially now that it is completely overlapping with the magazine stories. Like, do we still need to read Monsters Unleashed? I think there are still Frankenstein stories coming in, in the magazines. God damn it. I, I think it's a Morbius situation where they just, like, weirdly coexist. Yeah, it's... It's it's interesting. Like, the Val Myrick artwork's okay, but it's not as good as other Val Myrick artwork you've seen. I'm pretty sure right. that has something to do with it being inked by Vince Coletta. That yeah. Though well, there's there's a lot of sort of not blank backgrounds, but minimal backgrounds. Yes. Um, uh, in fact, all of this this montage of time passing where the backgrounds are just solid colors. Yep. Yep. Although we do get a Marvel value stamp this issue. We do. And, and it's the Gollum. Yeah. Yeah. Which I, I think we're supposed to be seeing some more of him in the near future, too. Exactly. And somewhat outside the purview of our podcast, but in the Marvel bullpen, we get an ad for Planet of the Apes. That's right. That's at least horror adjacent. Right? I mean, I will tell you, Beneath the Planet of the Apes gave me nightmares as a child. The, the underground community of radiation-burned humans that worshipped the atomic bomb. Yeah, that gave me nightmares as a kid. Oh, yeah. And Escape from Planet of the Apes, I, I adore that movie. It's got such a sad ending, though. Yep. 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 But it's also got Ricardo Montalban. This is City Alpha 5! <laughs> yeah, I, as far as the Frankenstein stuff, though, I, I will say, I, one thing I noted in the letters columns is that in their responses to people over and over again, they kind of admit that keeping the monster in the distant past was a mistake that it, that it kept that book too separate from what the other horror books were doing because werewolf by night and tomb of dracula all the others are set roughly in the present um and that they they sort of say it was a mistake to not do that with frankenstein from the beginning but the best issues of this book were the ones that recapped the mary shelley story sure so i, I think probably what they should have done was do the retelling of the mary shelley story and have him get frozen at the end and then just skip all the way to the present instead yeah, of doing this like piecemeal like decade by decade thing i can see that but yeah it's interesting i have no idea where the book goes from here next the monster walks among us well he's kind of been doing that since monsters unleashed number two so did you know the planet of the apes book wasn't just a comic book but actually a magazine no 84 big pages wow yep uh photos from the the movies uh, news of the TV adaptation that was about to debut at this point. Uh, I'm assuming that's the live action TV show. There, there were two Planet of the Apes TV shows. There was a live action and an animated. Yep. Um, they're both good. The animated one I think is better because in that one it's closer to the original novel. Like the apes have like cars and helicopters and stuff. Is it Filmation or Hanna Barbera? So no, it was actually neither. It was the Patty Freeling Enterprises DFE, co-founded by Fritz Freeling of Looney Tunes fame. Interesting. They did uh, the opening titles for the Pink Panther movie and its sequels. Okay. Um, and mo and they did most of the original Pink Panther cartoons. Oh, well, there um, you they go. Did, they did some Dr. Seuss specials. They did they did the lightsaber effects in the original Star Wars. So they, they did the rotoscoping for the, the lightsabers. Does that yep. mean that the animated Planet of the Apes was rotoscoped? It's not. Okay. I think that was just another thing that they were able to do was rotoscoping. Ah. If you didn't know any better, you'd think the Planet of the Apes show was was filmation. It it looks 
of of a piece with like the the Star Trek show, very similar style. Okay, like it, it's got that seventies Saturday morning vibe. Hey Trey, yeah, you know what? I think when we spend five minutes talking about Planet of the Apes instead of the comic we're covering, yeah, I think it's time to move on. Right. So we're going to take another quick break, and we'll be right back with our coverage of Tomb of Dracula number twenty four after these messages. Nico presents the Planet of the Apes action figures. Dr. Zaius, the orangutan scientist. Cornelius, the archaeologist. Zira, the woman scientist. The soldier ape. And the astronaut. All Planet of the Apes action figures sold separately by Migo. In 1974, four men literally changed the face of rock and roll forever. Gene Simmons, Peter Chris, Ace Frehley, and Paul Stanley wanted to become the band they never got to see. Over the next 40 plus years, the music, the makeup, the merchandise, and the loyal fan base have propelled KISS to one of rock and roll's elite groups. With KISS heading down their end of the road tour, we thought we would start our journey. Turn it up to 10 because we love it loud. Right Between the Eyes is a podcast all about our favorite band, KISS. We will be covering all eras of KISS with the various albums, studio, live, and compilations, plus album mashups and more. We will also cover solo and band projects from all members, past and present, while also looking at the various bands that have opened for KISS as well. Not to mention all of the fun items in the KISS catalog. TV appearances, long-form videos, merchandise, comic books. Come on, the list goes on and on. Coming in late May, early June 2021 to a podcast platform near you. Follow us on Twitter at RBTE Podcast. Loud. I want to hear hear it loud. loud. Right Right between between the the eyes. Welcome back to Believers. I am James Hickson, and our second and last comic for this episode is Tomb of Dracula number 24, A Night for the Living, A Morning for the Dead. Cover date on this one, as our previous issue, is September 1974. Writer is Marv Wolfman. Artist is Gene Colan. Inker is Tom Palmer. Letter is Charlotte Jeter. Colors is Tom Palmer. Editor is Roy Thomas. At London Bridge, Frank Drake and Rachel Van Helsing reflect on the recent seeming death of the book's title character, Dracula, unaware that the still very much undead Count is watching them from atop the nearby Big Ben. Frank is being an emo sad sack about finding out he's a descendant of the Lord of Vampires, and said Laura turning his girlfriend into a vampire and forcing Frank to kill her, and then, but Rachel pity kisses Frank before he can continue on his modern tirade. Disgusted by this burgeoning unhealthy romance, Dracula departs for a local strip club, but more on that later. Meanwhile, at the apartment of his lady love, Saffron, Blade finds the aforementioned lady being menaced by a junkie-looking vampire who demands the vampire hunter report to his master for execution. But Blade makes quick work of the vamp, 
and instead beds down with his main squeeze for the night. Not the whole night, however, as they are stirred from their bed by Saffron's friend Trudy. Trudy is a dancer at a nearby club, and tells Blade and Saffron of a particularly creepy patron of the club, who somehow convinced Trudy to take them back to her place. Yet when they arrive, Trudy realized their guest was not your usual strip club creeper, but a vampire. When the fanged fiend tried to feed on Trudy, their resourceful lass pulls a crucifix from the wall and bashes her assailant in the head with it. With the vampire distracted by the sizzling brand on his face, Trudy makes her escape to Blade's place, being pursued by the now bat-shaped attacker the whole way. Blade goes out to investigate Trudy's story and is almost immediately pushed into the path of an oncoming double-decker bus by the winged creature. Escaping harms a stunt worthy of Buster Keaton, Blade then pursues the creature to a nearby department store and proceeds to sling merchandise at the bloodsucker before finally causing it to flee after slashing it for a wooden blade. Meanwhile in India, Taj meets again after many years of his wife, who tells the tall silent vampire hunter that she has summoned him home because their son is dying. Todd responds to his bride by slapping her and then leaving again. Meanwhile, back in England, with all subplots accounted for, we find Dracula returning to the innocent embrace of Sheila Witter and his coffin just as the sun comes. Just as the same sun's rays, he's Frank take his leave of Rachel Van Helsing, saying that he must find out who he is and hopefully return to her a better man. Whew. That was a long summary. He's my man, and I know he isn't evil like they all say he is. Oh, Sheila, honey, no. That's a toxic relationship. Yeah, so we're, we're going to talk about this straight up? Okay. So Sheila Witter says that she knows other people call Dracula evil, but she can't believe he's evil because he's her man. She is a lovely person. Warm, intelligent, just kind of gullible. Like every word out of her mouth makes you want to be like, "Oh, honey." Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what she says. That no, that that's not how it works. No, 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 sweetie. No, that just she can do better. Is the thing. Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah. <laughs> we just want to do a quick public service announcement from the Tomb of Ideas, girls. No matter what some popular novel series tell you. Don't date vampires. No, no. It, it doesn't lead to a healthy relationship. They're just going to drain you dry, both emotionally, physically, and sometimes, let's be honest, financially. Yes. On a related note, I really hope we get some more context for whatever is going on with Taj, because he does not come off well in this one. Yeah, I've, I've summoned you home because our son is dying. Smack. That, no. What the? First off, don't hit women. Second off, don't hit women. Third off, what the hell, man? Also, his wife is in a wheelchair because of an unspecified accident, which is the reason that he left. Oof. Like, there's just a lot going on there that we need context for. You know, between this Dracula and Frank Drake just being Frank Drake, this issue's really hurting for positive male role models. Y yeah, more like tomb of toxic masculinity, right? Except for Blade. Blade seems to have something healthy going on. Yeah, right? Like, him and Saffron seem to be really healthy. And yep. I love how he tries to play... Trudy comes to the door, and he, she's like, I came to you because of something I remember Saffron saying about you. And he's like, uh, well, if she's told you about my amazing cooking, you really come at the wrong hour for it. I'm like, 
<laughs> Great line. Beautiful. Also, I, I like how she's like, is that a dead body? And he's like, yeah, I didn't have time to clean it up. And it's like, he didn't have time to clean it up because they went to the bedroom right after he killed the vampire. Nothing against your lady's motor running, like killing a vampire in front of her. <laughs> like, Don't you but know? Like, I, feel like, I feel like the reason why he has not had time to deal with that is is strange, <laughs> to say the least. You know, I, I, uh, I, I can't see fault in it. Gosh, though, it really doesn't get much better than Tom Palmer inking and coloring Gene Colan. Really doesn't, especially after his Vince Coletta inks in the previous issue. Yeah, this yeah. is a breath of fresh air. It, it's the second page uh, of the comic. I love the panel of Dracula perched on the clock tower, looking down. Yep, like that's just that's perfect. Like pulpy gothic horror stuff right there. Also, is this the first? I'm pretty sure this is the first. You know, I'm not sure if it's the first, but there's a lot of sex in this issue. This is, they're pushing the boundaries here. Like they, they are going right up to the line of what's allowed in a full color comic as opposed to a magazine. Like Trudy works at the strip club. Positive depictions of sex work. Yep. She spends basically the whole issue in her underwear. Yep. And a trench coat. To the, to the point that they had to like modify her appearance for the cover. Yes. Like she looks a lot classier on the cover. <laughs> Well, she's does wearing in the clothes. Book. Yeah, she's wearing like an evening gown type thing yeah. on the cover. Well, it, it's suggesting she's an actress rather than uh, a, a stripper. Yes, which I guess is implied here that either Trudy, Trudy is Saffron's neighbor or Saffron also works at the club. Uh, I, I got the impression that they were co-workers. Okay. Also... Um, I could be wrong there, but that was... But Saffron just seems familiar with the club. Right. Also, speaking of implied sexual sexual behavior in this book, um, you have Blade wearing the bottoms of the pajamas and Saffron wearing yep. the top. Yep. So, yep. make of this, that what you will. Uh, there's not much you can make of it. <laughs> Again, they this could is just have matching sets. Yeah. Uh huh. That, but plausible <laughs> deniability. This is a lot to take in for a 1974 comic book. It is, and and when when Trudy goes into her flashback, the it, we got we have some really purple overall prose here. Yeah, I was finishing the final show at the club where Saffron and I grind out our living. The place oh, yep, smelled yep, of bitter. Yep, yep, yep. Saffron, the place smelled of bitter cigars and spilled drinks. But my mind was elsewhere on a late date I had. Like that's like femme fatale in a cheap noir, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, but it I don't works. hate it. Like it, it works, no. but but it's definitely it, it takes on a very interesting tone, you know. And we've seen this before with Marv Wolfman, where Marv Wolfman just gets out some prose, just knocks out some prose yeah. in his book. And this is a real wordy issue, like especially oh, yeah. this section. Like there's there's a page where there's there's as, there are as many caption boxes as there are pictures. Yep, but a lot happens here. Mm-hmm. That's why part of the reason my summary was so long. Just a lot happens well and and unlike monster frankenstein or the frankenstein monster whatever title that book's going by these days there's this huge supporting cast to catch up on and for a while that supporting cast had been neglected yeah this is the first time in a long time we've really spent time with frank and rachel and and even taj recently would just get these sort of two panel appearances and be gone Mm -hmm. so so the fact that we spent a fairly subs- substantial amount of time with all of our supporting cast, I guess, except for Quincy, 
who only gets mentioned. Yeah. But but everyone else is here and accounted for and doing stuff in and it all sort of fits together. And that's impressive. But I also think they're setting up Blade to be a star. Oh yeah. No, this is they want Blade to be the star of either this book or a different book. Yeah. And they do a great job here. He makes a great yeah. showing of himself. Like I said, there's that scene where he gets pushed in front of the bus and he do, he pulls yep. a straight Buster Keaton move. He pulls himself flat as possible and just lets the bus ride over him. Yeah. In terms of action, it reminded me a little bit of, do you remember the Dracula issue where Blade and Dracula on the... On a boat. Yeah. Yeah, on the boat. Yeah. So, sort of under siege with vampires. Yep. That was that similar level of we are supposed to think Blade is the coolest and his coolness and his sort of action is what drives things. Yeah. And I 100% agree because I yeah. want more Blade after this. Yeah. I mean, we wanted more Blade after the boat issue, but now we want yeah. even more Blade. And I'll admit his 70s look took some getting used to because it's not what we're used to for Blade. No. But it, it's kind of grown on me. Yeah. Including his weird ski goggles. Not sure why he wears those, but it, it's fine. It, yeah. It's it's fun, and there's a lot of action. It's kind of much ado about nothing, though, because we sort of end up back where we started. Dracula hasn't accomplished much, and Frank is still leaving Rachel. But what it does is it kind of returns everything to status quo for the book. Because... Oh, yeah. Yeah. This feels we, like the launching of a new arc. Yes, because we've just had the end of this really odd period where, like like you said, we're not seeing a lot of the supporting cast. We're following Drag the most. We have this weird Dr. Sin storyline. We have the well, and, old and Sheila Witter storyline. that had line. basically been, even the Dr. Sun stuff had mostly been wrapped up for a while. Like we had sort of been floundering from issue to issue because I don't think they really knew what to do next. And it seems like with this, they've landed on something. Now, here's a question. Does Blade realize that this is Dracula? I don't think so. Because he never takes human form. He doesn't. And and Blade is convinced it's a vampire pretending to be Dracula. Wait, where does he say that? She said he called himself Count Vlad. That's Dracula's name. But Drac's dead, or so Quincy Harker says, which means either this is some vampire impersonating Dracula or Harker's crazy. Either way, I'll find him and take care of him and then get on with my problem to find the vampire that killed my mother. So it'll be interesting to see if after this fight, he still thinks it's an impersonator or thinks it... Or if he's like, yeah, obviously that was Dracula. No one else would have given me that hard a fight. Exactly. And I I feel like Blade is smart enough to figure that out. Mm -hmm. So that'll be interesting to see for next issue. Again, for people new to the show, Tomb of Dracula is just consistent. It is is consistently good. Some issues are maybe not quite as interesting as others, but they are all consistently good. And this one's just fantastic. Easily the best that we've had in a long time. Agreed. So I guess it's not much of a mystery which of these books we thought was the better book. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's uh, it's the one where new things happen to characters that we like. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh. Speaking of new things happening to characters we like, Trey, I do yeah. think it is time for the hottest segment in all of podcasting ever. Hellstrom Watch? Okay, no, you gotta let me do the sound first, and then I then someone says Hellstrom Watch. Oh, sorry. Well, you've ruined it now. Let's just... Fine. Hellstrom Watch! 
So I don't know if anybody knows about this, but apparently there's some kind of new Spider-Man movie coming out, maybe? Um, no, hadn't heard anything about it. Okay. Yeah, uh, so probably just a rumor I saw on Twitter. Okay, we should stop because people's new to the show actually might take it seriously. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, long-time listeners will know we've been talking about uh, No Way Home for a while now, and the new trailers are out. It looks real good, y'all. Yeah, it, it broke the internet in half. Like, the majority of people online seem to be waiting on this trailer with bated breath all of yep. Tuesday before last, and it dropped and people lost their minds, either from mm-hmm. elation or disappointment. And I, the people who are disappointed are, I think, being a little bit unrealistic as to, like, what's going to get shown in a trailer. Yes. It seems like the people who want are disappointed want everything spoiled for them. Like, they right just want now. the movie to be out. And I, I get that. I want to see the movie, too. But to see the whole movie in a trailer is not what I want. No, no. It's, it's patience, patience, my friends. Like they're not going to show you Matt Murdock in a trailer. Mm-hmm. They're not going to no. show you two other Spider-Man in a trailer, especially if we're not saying any of that stuff is actually happening. Cause who knows? It might not be, but no, it, it might not even be. if, it, but if it is, they're not going to show it to you in a trailer. Right. Especially if it's, as I suspect, not as big an element of the film as you think it is right i have a feeling if if toby Maguire and or andrew garfield are there at all it is probably a very brief cameo or it's the last third of the movie but i'm like i could even see it being like like some of the stuff that that dc did with their crisis on infinite earths tv event where there were a bunch of cameos from across you know various generations of superhero adaptations but most of them were very brief yeah it's uh it'll be it looks like it'll be great i'm just excited like so i know alfred molina as doc ock is amazing that's that's awesome that he's back i'm excited about willem dafoe mainly just because willem dafoe is one of my favorite actors period so him coming back to a role where he really just gets to turn things up to 11 like as norman osborne uh is always appreciated agreed agreed plus they've got lizard and sandman and electro yeah and I'm really appreciating Stephen Strange in this movie. He's kind of taking yeah. the role that Tony Stark had in some of the previous Spider-Man, Spider-Man movies. Well, okay, let me rephrase. Tony Stark had that role in the first Spider-Man movie. Right? Nick Fury had it in the second Spider-Man movie. Well, the scroll posing as Nick Fury had that role. Right. But then, I guess, Stephen Strange has it in this third movie. Also, I love that this movie is kind of like the two big Steve Ditko guys, the two big Mm -hmm. Steve Ditko creations. And it'll be interesting to see how it leads into multiverse of madness. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and and again, I've seen some people being like, why would Spider-Man team up with Dr. Strange? That seems weird or silly or like those two characters don't fit together. I'm pretty sure the first Spider-Man annual, which was a Lee Ditko joint was a spider-man doctor strange crossover yep so should be interesting yeah also we got just last week and you'll have a new episode when it by the time this episode drops well depending on what coast you're on the the week that our episode comes out (laughs) yeah the week this episode comes out 
you'll have the third episode of Hawkeye, and we haven't seen the third episode, but we've seen the first two, and yeah. I loved it. Yes, yes, I loved it too. Should we put in place the spoiler gate? We probably should, just to be safe. Okay. Lower the spoiler gate. <laughs> Frankly, frankly, Disney probably owes Matt Fraction and David Aha some money. Now, to be fair, Matt Fraction is listed as a consulting producer on sure, Hawkeye. Sure. So that's, there's that's a, good. There's a he, good he chance. He probably got a paycheck then. <laughs> yeah, he, he probably got a producer-sized paycheck. Aha, maybe not, because I don't think he's even listening so, to the credits. Apparently, apparently, I didn't know this until I... I, I clicked a link just now referencing Fraction as a producer. Um, originally, Fraction was supposed to make a cameo as a member of the Tracksuit Mafia, <laughs> uh, but was unable to because of uh, the pandemic. Aw, that's sad. Yeah, I noticed a bunch of very subtle face covering in yes. this episode, especially like yeah. at the Ren Fair and mm -hmm. the scenes with the firefighters. There is some very subtle face covering going on. Not so much that you, you notice it if you weren't looking for it, but well, and and it filmed like December 2020, so like that was at a point where, especially when they were filming in New York, they probably needed as many people wearing face coverings as possible. Yeah, yeah. But um, what's the actress's name? H Haley uh, Steinfeld. Haley Steinfeld is great yeah. as kate bishop she is yeah that uh, was and then th that was that was a fan favorite casting choice lots of fan castings had picked her to play that part and uh this was one of the rare instances where the fan casting was right oh yeah she is great and they actually almost like held production of the series so she could participate mm -hmm. yeah she had like a movie or something she was working on that uh that uh, got in the way of when the original start date was. And how about her uh, would-be stepfather? Um, okay, why? where should I know him from? Well, so the actor, not so much. Uh, although uh, he, he's mostly in Spanish language stuff, although he was in uh, Better Call Saul on AMC. Okay. But I'm mostly just calling out the character. Oh, yeah. Super squeezy. Because it's, it's Jack Duquesne. Jacques Duquesne, the swordsman. Oh, shit. Oh, oh, yeah. How did I not catch that? <laughs> well, they changed the first name from Jacques to Jack, but but all the swords lying around were a clue. Yeah, yeah. And that he wanted the Ronin sword specifically. Oh, wow. That is interesting. Yep. Ooh, now my brain is buzzing with possibilities. Right, right. And I thought they did a good job of weaving the Ronin stuff from Endgame into this story, like making that mean something. Cause it, cause the Ronin stuff ends up being kind of a, like not a nothing, but, but it's a very small part of Endgame that doesn't really go anywhere except to explain why Clint is angsty throughout that movie. Yeah. Th this show sort of does something with that, that Ronin identity and, and makes it, I don't know, interesting in a way that Endgame didn't do as much of. So the public is unaware that Clint Barton is, was Ronin it at this point, correct? That is true, yes. No, that, it's actually said specifically in the auction that nobody knows who who the Ronin was. 
So all they know is that they all they know is they found the gear in the wreckage of the Avengers uh, compound. So is he worried that if people find the costume, they'll figure out that Clint Barton was Rodan? Is it is his name on the tag? I don't don't think that's it, really. I, I think it's more he doesn't want anyone else claiming the identity and having all of the enemies that he made coming after them. Mm. But like, he seemed like he wasn't willing or to have the suit burn up in the fire. Although, right. can it burn in a fire is a good question. I, I imagine it's probably fireproof. Probably made of, I don't know, unstable molecules or something. Yeah. But I would like a little more information on it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I, th- I think that's coming because for some reason, a lot of people in this show want that outfit and that gear. Um, I think specifically a lot of people in the show want a line to, to Ronan. Yes, that that's fair. They want to know who Ronan is. Yeah. Because they can get sweet, sweet revenge on him. Right. In particular, the tracksuit mafia idiots. Such idiots. Who apparently are working Ec- for Echo. Yeah, who is not an idiot. No. So it'll be interesting to see where that goes. Of course, Echo in the comics is kind of an adopted daughter of the kingpin oh okay i haven't read that many for comics but oh yeah um her father is killed by the kingpin and his dying wish is that the kingpin give his daughter a good life and so kingpin like raises her as a daughter and mistaking her deafness for other mental disabilities she's sent to a very expensive school for children with special needs and and sort of from there her life progresses just but but she she has some very direct connections to the kingpin going back to the early days of her life in the comics Ooh, that does that interesting and leaves creative of course of course in the comics she was ronin for a while yeah she was ronin she was the second ronin i think after hawkeye yep i think because i think clint and then echo and i think blade was ronin after that blade was ronin for a minute yeah gosh darn it all these dudes with swords. In a, a run of Mighty Avengers, uh, a mysterious character shows up uh, wearing a cheap Spider-Man Halloween costume to keep his identity secret. And respecting his wishes to keep his identity secret, the Avengers give him the Ronin outfit for a while. That is so weird. And it eventually turns out to be Blade. Why does Blade care? Okay. Whatever. <laughs> we, 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 we won't get into we won't get into com- too much comic history for any sure. new listeners we sure. have today. But... Suffice to say, it's a good show. Yeah, I, I love that it's a Christmas series. Um, I love the stuff with Clint's family. Like, his kids are great. Oh, wait, hold on, hold on. I do have to ask for uh-huh. something. Yeah? Um, because we are both of us musical theater nerds. Yeah? What did you think of Rogers the Musical? Um, it still looks better than Spider-Man Turn Off the Dark. Yes. But how cheap are those freaking costumes? Oh, awful. Well, so it looks like the what they're making fun of is the minimalist style of Hamilton, right? Like, it's a little bit Hamilton, it's a little bit Rent. But Hamilton, at least, has somewhat period-accurate costumes. Sure. Well, I mean, and so this is set in the modern day. So, like, it, 
It's sort of like doing Henry V modern dress, right? Which I guess there is a musical doing that now, kind of. What the the what modern dress uh, like period stuff? No, I'm thinking Henry VIII. Excuse uh, me. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, six. Six. Yeah. Yeah. About, which is about Henry VIII's six wives. Yes. Yes. But um, anyway, as pop stars, just, kind of Henry wives of Henry VIII, but make them Spice Girls. I can dig it. <laughs> but yeah, uh, Hawkeye though, great stuff. Uh, the 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 Rogers musical was hilarious. Um, I I also so wait enjoy, yeah. This is six months after everybody gets snapped back, right? I believe I, I, at least yeah. They got a musical production up and running again over six months, or is so, it six months after like? Falcon and Winter Soldier. So what I've read is that this is set further past Endgame than anything else we've seen. Okay, I'm seeing things saying Hawkeye is either late 2024 or 2025. That that sounds right. So it's been a year. Yeah, yeah. Because Endgame occurred in October 2023. Right. So there you go. But yeah, great cast. Lucky the Pizza Dog is awesome. Yes, he is... A good boy. Yes. And I'm very excited to see how Yelena Belova, the second Black Widow, figures into things eventually. But yeah, this was a very good first start. It's crazy that I'm sort of surprised that with it just being a six episode series, they dropped the first two because that's like a big chunk of their episodes. I think they want everything out in time for Christmas. That sounds fair. I mean, I I could see that. Because that would make sense to me. That would, I feel like the last episode is going to be either right at Christmas or just after Christmas. Like, Hawkeye's like, oh, I've got Mm. five days to get home for Christmas. It'll be fine. I can almost guarantee it is going to be a nail-biter if he's going to be home in time for Christmas morning. But but I I do think, I hope at least, I do do hope that the series ends with him having Christmas with his family and maybe even introducing Kate to his family. Right. Or at least introducing Pizza Dog to the family. Yes, yes. Kate can stay in New York. Pizza Dog, <laughs> but, oh, well, Pizza Dog might want to stay with Kate. I don't know. It, if the dog dies, we riot. Right, right. Although I also would not be mad if the whole thing ended with the two Hawkeyes. Hawkeye? I'm not sure what the plural is here. But if the two of them move to the West Coast with plans to start a team. I think it's Hawkeyes, like Buckeyes. Okay, yeah, yeah. So, so if, if Clint Barton and Dr. Pierce from MASH walk into a bar, they are Hawkeyes. Yes. Okay. And then Daniel Day-Lewis walks in. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but. A little less the Mohicans joke there. Because we, we are nothing if not <laughs> topical hip references on this show. That's right. <sighs> but, uh, but yeah, looking forward to seeing more. But I think Hawkeyes is yet another good and like very good worthy installment of the mcu on disney plus yep and that does it for another episode of tomb of ideas that's right if you'd like to reach out to us you can do so our email address is tomb of ideas at gmail.com our twitter is at Tomb of Ideas. Our Facebook is facebook.com slash Tomb of Ideas, even though, yes, I am aware Facebook is evil. What do you want me to do? And, of course, we are proud members of the Cinepunks podcasting group. That's right. That means that you can find all of our back catalog 
along with a lot of other great shows and articles and reviews on cinepunks.com. That's cinepunks with an X. Find shows like the flagship Cinepunks show. Uh, you got Cinema Smorgasbord, Horror Business, of course, Tomb of Ideas, a lot of other great stuff. So be sure to check out cinepunks.com. And until next time, Tomb Believers, bye-bye. Bye. You have been listening to the Tomb of Ideas, a Marvel Horror Podcast. Until next time, Tomb Believers, Excelsior! <laughs>